Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. The goal of this show is to understand the inner workings and evolution of mixology, hospitality, and community. As I further my own knowledge of the field, I'm inviting you to join me. You'll hear me interview people from around the industry about their work and beliefs. If you like what you hear, the best way to keep up is to subscribe via the podcast app you use. And if you think others will like this, I invite you to share an episode or write a review. Your words help grow our audience. And you can keep up with the latest news via our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, or see what we're working on via Instagram. And please reach out. I'd enjoy hearing what you liked, learned, and what else you'd like to see me dig into. So let's get into it. My guest today is Kira Webster. She's the beverage director and general manager of two James Beard-nominated restaurants, Indo and Nippon Kira began her time in bartending while working at Bar Louie in St. Louis. As she puts it, she was walking through the restaurant before service when the regional director of operations nodded in her general direction to the general manager and said, she has what it takes to be a bartender. And from there, she was baptized into the profession as so many are by surviving and ultimately thriving in the nightly crushing torrents of drink orders. Bar Louie taught Kira a lot but it was the opportunity to work early on at the Chase Park Plaza's Preston Cocktail Bar where she began to really hone her skills. From there, Kira worked at 801 Chop House, The Bow, and was ultimately then recruited to Indo in Niponte. Her current work also allows her to rediscover and play with many of the flavors and ingredients she grew up with courtesy of her Japanese mother. You know what I liked about this segment was uh, a couple of things. We talk about not loving a drink that you order. And while I think uh, it's our job in part as patrons when we're ordering something to try to understand it a little bit, we never fully can. And if something arrives, Kira talks a little bit about how do you both respectfully bring up uh, if you don't love the drink. And one of the things she says is, you know, by giving people hints of like, here's what I think I don't like, it's a way that they can better help correct something because we all do have individual tastes. And so it is just the reality that while we should be respectful about a thing, if but if you're paying 13 or 14 bucks for a drink and you don't love it, finding the courage in a very uh, polite way to try to talk about what you don't like about it is a way that they can hopefully correct for that for you. We also talk about, since I'm always looking for hacks for people out there, uh, a bottled juice that she often thinks can stand in well for fresh citrus if you don't have it on hand, even though that's always the preference. Another thing Kira talks about, and this is a real little thing, but she talked about uh, stirred drinks, like a Manhattan as an example, and enjoying it on the rocks herself. A Manhattan traditionally isn't served on the rocks. And so I think it's one of those things of if there's a way you like a drink, if Kira, uh, who has dealt with all sorts of stuff, if she can like a boozy drink that's not supposed to, quote-unquote, be served up, if that's the way she wants it, we should all have the courage to order a drink the way we like it. Finally, uh, I think about the liqueur Campari, as I talk about in this segment, as one of the most divisive things out there. And Campari is also related to another product called Aperol. 
And we really get into that and talk about a whole other brand uh, of products called Contrado and this scale of bitter liqueurs out there. So whether you uh, like something very light where you can start or uh, if you are a fan of Campari, but at times you're looking for something a little bitter, how do you begin to back it off? So she paints kind of a spectrum between the April Campari and, and Contrato family. So I thought that was great. Uh, as you hear us talk through things, there'll be links uh, to them in the show notes uh, in case you hear ingredients that come up you don't know. And so with that, uh, let's get into our discussion with Kira. So first, thank you for taking some time to talk today. Yeah, of course. But, you know, even before we started recording, you, we were talking a little bit about people sometimes being um, unsure at the bar about what they're ordering. And with at least, and you've had this obviously throughout some of your you know, different career at, you know, the Bow and other places that we can talk about. But, you know, at a place like Indo that has, you know, Southeast Asian uh cuisine at its heart. Uh, chef has some Japanese training, which influences things. You know, uh, a customer's likely to see things like soju or, or, or lemon or yuzu on the menu. How do you find people um, respond to this? And clearly there's a wide array of customers, but are people curious? Does it ever make them stand back and not necessarily want to jump in? How do you, how do you find people respond to these things? I think... When it comes to ingredients in, in cocktails specifically, um, I think the overwhelming majority tend to kind of just avoid cocktails that have like too many ingredients that they don't know. Um, if there's just one, they're more comfortable with asking like, oh, I know everything, but I don't know what this is. So can you explain this to me? And and then the, it's a, a little bit easier to get the conversation going. But with some cocktails, with some people that order like from the menu, they're like, I see this cocktail and I literally have no idea what any of these ingredients are. And so, and then I think in their minds, if they're thinking like that, they're like, well, I don't know what any of that is. So I'm just going to stay away from that one. Even though flavor profile wise might be exactly what they're looking for. So the main thing of, especially working in a place like Indo where the ingredients are unfamiliar is being able to easily start a conversation with the guests and I try to incorporate that into the names of the cocktail and I try to make the cocktail not too unapproachable where someone was like, okay, well, I know what lemon or lime is. So it's going to be have a little bit of citrus to it. I know what tequila is. I know what this is. And like for one of them, I have a Tommy and lollipop. And even though maybe they can't like actually envision that well in their, in their head, they're like, oh, well, that sounds really interesting. I want to see what that's about. So it's about having a little bit of mystery behind it just to create that little bit of intrigue, but not making it so unapproachable that they're like, oh, I, I just want to stay away from that. It's a, it's kind of a weird, delicate balance where I want to do really weird things, but I'm like, I can't go too weird. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, um, you know, for ingredients like this, is it kind of in terms of your exposure and deciding what to maybe bring into the menu? Is it what's just what the kitchen is bringing in and you're messing around with it are you i mean there's probably also research happening but how are you deciding which elements if i may from sometimes far corners of the globe 
perhaps to incorporate here. And obviously they're being grounded at times with things that are familiar, gin, tequila, rum, etc. Mm-hmm. But how do you find yourself kind of digging into some of that research, deciding what to bring in? Um, a lot of it is from the kitchen, um, specifically with Indo and actually with Nibante too. Um, I really try to I really try to incorporate some of the ingredients we use in the kitchen in the cocktails just because I want I want the cocktail menu to be a reflection of the food because people come there for the food. Like uh, Shevnik is super talented and he's his food is very unique and I want I want the cocktails to reflect on his uniqueness. He puts a little bit of himself into every dish that he makes and you can tell and that's something that I always try to do with my cocktails too. Um, it's kind of interesting like where you talk about ingredients because I grew up going to Japan every other summer and it became so second nature to me because I did it all my life. Like whenever I was around other ingredients, it never occurred to me that I was like, oh, this, we, we just don't have this in the U.S. This is like, this is here in Japan. Like this is what I eat in Japan. This is what I eat when I'm back home because I grew up in rural Illinois. So mm-hmm. two very different parts of the world. But it wasn't until I got older and I started getting into cocktails that it actually helped me get more into my mom's culture and that part of it. Because I would be like, oh, like I, I'm seeing the ingredients in a whole other way. And it became a little bit easier for me to incorporate those ingredients into cocktails because they also meant something to me. Putting some, putting some of myself into a cocktail like that. And so I, always, I do, to answer your question in a very short way, I do try to work from the kitchen um most of the time it is talking to the chefs and being like what do we have a lot of and sometimes i'll be like we have a lot of mango puree we have a lot of like chocolate we have a lot of sesame like like we have some stuff that we might need to get rid of so you might you could use these in a cocktail for now and i'm like all right cool like there i had one with a lot of pom- we had a lot of pomegranates in house and like we need to do something i was like okay i might do like a pomegranate like grenadine like a pomegranate's a base for grenadines so i might do like a cramp we had a lot of cranberry juice put those together make it into like a neat little house-made grenadine so that way that gives us a little bit more mobility with people that want like a shirley temple or like if they in case they ask for it like i try to think of the more versatile uses in that sense but still make it interesting still make it sound appealing mm-hmm. and I always found it interesting in my own little journey too that um, you know, grenadine is this thing that is kind of a parody at times, and yet what we don't know from from many of us, you know, uh, having grown up in an era pre when cocktails were in vogue, they're like, oh, like at its heart when it's not commercially manufactured and likely just you know synthetic, they're like, oh yeah, pomegranate is the base of it. People hear that because they just they just assume grenadine is grenadine, whatever the heck it is. So yeah, it's interesting sometimes when some of these things get brought, get drawn out like a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the cumulative effect of the number of hours that you've studied, been, but like when I think about the crafting of a drink menu, I mean, clearly there are so many years behind this, but I guess I'm curious, when you're th- thinking about bringing a new drink to life or a new menu to life, uh, and I don't know if there's a way to back into like just the, the cumulative years you put in there, but how many hours does it take you when you're kind of like working on a new drink, working with a new ingredient, or let alone bringing a new menu to life? How much time does that tend to take? And I'm sure it can vary. It it, it does vary. It varies a lot. Um, so the drink you had, the Python's Pearl, whenever you came into Indo, that drink maybe took me 
an hour, like cumulatively, because there were different times that I kind of worked with it, mainly to like get the foam. Like the foam actually took longer than the drink just to balance out the acid in it. But yeah, I made the drink itself, but without the foam, I made it three times. And I was like, it's done, it's good. And, and it didn't, it hardly took me any time. One of the other drinks I have on there right now, that's a rye whiskey based one with a coriander oil. It took me like almost two bottles of Knob Creek rye to get it right. It took me about, I would say closer to like eight hours okay. from cumulatively Got it. to get that right. So it really just depends on, on the ingredients, it depends on the spirit. Um, there are some drinks that I work on for a long time that I work on for almost a day. And I'm like, it's it's not going anywhere. <laughs> I have to shelve this for another time. Yeah. So at Indo, and I think you've talked about this a little bit, uh, the bar is not in the customer's line of sight. Nope. How does that, um, Does one, does it ever take the edge off in a way because something goes wrong, like, you know, you're kind of out of sight, but like, you know, in terms of being at a cocktail program where you're in the customer's line of sight versus not, other advantages, frustrations, like how, how, how do you think about that in a way? There are definitely pros and cons. Um, I do wish that Endo did have some kind of bar because I feel like it would bring a little bit more character to the space. Um, when we had the suit, the chef's counter, it definitely that definitely created its own flair. Um, but not having any kind of like one-on-one -on -one guest interaction because serving tables in a fine dining place, like there's still there's not a whole lot of room for connecting with someone on a personal level. I mean, the server's standing above you, you're sitting down. Like there's not really like a balance with how you're interacting, and you don't. There's not a whole lot of room for for like an intimate conversation where it's really hard to build that um, in a dining in a dining room setting but at a bar you know we have so many different personalities at Indo and we don't really get to showcase those as much and the way that like the drinks are made and like watching the bartenders make them it's a great show for guests to have during dinner. It adds a whole other aspect of like your dining experience. And we're missing some of that. And which sometimes going to the pros, if something bad happens or like something gets spilled, no one sees it. If, if the bartender has to prep randomly in the middle of shift and take up more space, no one sees it. Like they're not, they're not seeing some of like the uglier parts of bartending where or like the bartender can be in the kitchen and Indo, and they're just like if they if they're like if they mess something up if like they're cussing or like having a bad day like they they don't see that either yeah whereas like it that can shift the dynamic of the floor if the bar if the bar is in the middle there's like not in the middle but in the dining room yeah in the professional world where you're smiling on the outside but Cursing on the inside. So. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There yeah, you can just let it all out. So. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely a little bit easier, but yeah, there is an element that's missing that I wish that we had at Endo, like with a bar there, and 
I feel like it would create, I feel like there are a lot of people that would like a bar at Endo too. I mean, we don't have the space for it. It probably won't happen, but, <laughs> but it, it, it kind of creates another challenge for me of like, okay, I have to have these drinks speak for themselves when they go, when they go to the table, they have to speak for themselves. Like the food speaks for itself because I mean, that's how food always has been. The chef is saying something with his food and I have to make sure that whatever I'm wanting to say, whatever I'm wanting this person, the guest to receive, like they're getting it without any kind of help from a bartender. And I can appreciate as you kind of talk about it too. And every once in a while you can have it with, with the server as well, but when you're at the the bar, there's also plenty of room for incidental conversation mm-hmm. as they're just going about their work, assuming you're not keeping the bartender from their work, because please people, let them get their work done. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess there, there's that thing of um, you're more hoping for that rather than it's more likely to happen in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things I feel like is interesting, you know, being out, you know, occasionally now and a lot more in the past, but, you know, in this could even be through the lens of food, but I think about it through the lens of drinks, something lands that a person has ordered and they didn't realize what they ordered or the bartender, like I can remember one time being at the bar, small change, and a Negroni came you know, across the bar top and uh, owners there like a very gin heavy Negroni. And I took a sip of that and I was like, whoa, like it was, I was, I was looking for a little bit more of those equal parts. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind that they have their own approach, but also being a quieter night. And I feel like knowing what I want, I don't have an issue necessarily bringing that up. I feel like I see people a lot of times, whether it's with a dish or with a drink, um, you know, is there a tactful way? Because I think about the way of like, they don't perhaps want to insult you, Mm -hmm. um, or they might not know, they know it's not right. They don't necessarily know how to talk about what's wrong with it for them. Mm -hmm. Are there ways that you can think of that people should ask other than, just ask like I mean how does someone broach the conversation of like hey I bought this and I'm not sure I like it um it really it really does help us if you can pinpoint what it is about it that you don't like even if it's like I'm getting a lot of this flavor and this isn't what I anticipated like I'm getting like going back to cilantro like I'm getting weird notes of cilantro in this and even if there isn't any cilantro in it, it still gives us a kind of a gauge where it's like, okay, like there is an herbal note to this. Right. So maybe they're picking up on this and like they're from their palate to their brain. It's just, it's not getting, it's not obviously not cilantro, but that's what they're thinking. So we can at least try to be like, okay, you don't like a lot of herbal. Like we can work with that. Like we can tone this down a little bit make that maybe do you want it sweeter? Do you want it more acidic? Like, do you want us to add soda water to it to like balance it? Like, Will that balance it up for you? Something like that. Or if, like, for instance, they order an agroni and we don't use Campari in it, we use Aperol or Contrago Bitter, like one of their aperitivos we mentioned before, and they're like, yeah, it's, it's kind of sweet, or it's like there's something weird about it, like, oh, we did use a different aperitivo, but we, we can definitely switch it up and we can do it the way that you like it. So 
pinpointing what exactly it is you don't like will help us out so much. Because then we can be like, all right, I, I think I know what this, I think I know what you're talking about. And there's ways to alleviate that. Got it. Yeah, and I guess where you took it is what I, what, what I had been thinking and didn't articulate is, hey, this is, this is very hot. I'm getting a lot of alcohol. Hey, this is very acidic. This is very lemony or limey. Hey, this is too sweet. Yeah, if they can give you a leader, then you can better understand where they are as opposed to, I don't know, something's wrong with this. Fix it. Like, yeah. like, like trying to give them a guide on it. Um, have you been in bar? So one, is there a, you know, I'm sure Friday night at 8 p.m. is everybody's favorite time to, to have uh, a special request come in. But, you know, are there situations you can think of in which you would not bring that up with a bartender or staff? Like, I mean, I always take the vantage point. If you pay for it and you can be a decent human, why not bring it up? Um, but are there, are there any circumstances under which you think someone shouldn't bring that up at all? Yes, because I've been in a situation like that. Okay. Uh, I went into a bar. I was like, I really want a Tom Collins. And I just wasn't, I was not thinking about it. And I saw the bartender make it. They made it correctly, but they didn't have fresh lime juice. It was one of those, it was a dive bar that did not have fresh lime juice. They only used roses. And before I could like stop, because if I would have realized it, I would have been like, hey, stop. I'm sorry. Don't make that. Just make a regular gin and tonic. But she had already made it. And I was like, oh, no. I, I like just watched. I was like, oh, no. And it was on like a tall pint glass. And I was like, this is not going to be good. And then I drank it. And I was like, it's not good. <laughs> it doesn't have enough acid to it at all. And so I just, I, I didn't say anything. I was like, I should have taken, I've been in that bar before. I was like, I should have realized I should have just looked around and like thought for a second, but, and I'm not going to shame any bars for not having fresh lime juice. Like if you don't have the clientele, if you don't have enough clientele to go through it, don't waste the product by juicing it or waste the time of having to juice it. Cause if you don't use it, you don't, you don't use it. And I was just like, yeah, I'll just have like couple extra lime wedges and I just squeezed it in and tried to make it a little bit better. I got through it as much as I could and then I was like, I can't do it. I can't. I, like it's, they're also heavy pours at this bar. So I was like, I should have known better. <laughs> I, so first, yeah, I mean, any bar, like run, run whatever program you want, but sometimes yes. people will say like, Hey, like my neighborhood corner bar, like what should I get? And I'm like, well, if it's me, I mean, I'm probably going to get a beer, but like, you, but that's, Personal preference, like that person likes that, Tom Collins, good for them. So here's the thing, and I know we talked early on that like, if you're not prepared to speak to all the, the flavor aspects, but, like I, very routinely I'm in, you know, I'm in a virtual class or class in general, um, bottles of, you know, pre-squeezed lime juice, lemon juice will often appear and, uh, you know, hey, they're all getting us towards a cocktail, and if you like at the end of the day, but I've at times like done A/B tests on my own between like fresh squeezed and like like what is that like? But if for the person out there who's like, what's the difference? Is there a way that you can, you know, try to explain to them like what they're gonna get in a drink when they're using fresh citrus versus bottle? Is there a way to articulate that? Um, yes, I would say that 
like with anything fresh, it's going to have a cleaner taste for sure. Um, if it's like fresh fruit, for example, like fresh lime and fresh lemon, um, you're gonna you're probably gonna get a little bit more of like the natural bitter qualities that you get from from fruit. Whereas with just like prepackaged juices, a lot of run of the mill ones, not all of them, but a lot of run of the mill ones will have some kind of concentrate in them, um, which can help. But it's also going to create a little bit more sugar because they need the sugars in that to make it shelf stable for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to make the drink a little bit higher in sugar. It's going to make it a little bit sweeter. Um, other stabilizers that are used can, it can, if you taste it side by side with fresh juice, you can kind of taste some of the slight chemicals that they use for stabilizing it. But it, mixing it in drinks, you can't taste it as much. It kind of goes in the background, at least for me, or it could be just in my head, a placebo effect, because I know the difference between the two. But there are, there are a couple great uh, already packaged juices that taste really fresh. And depending on how much of it you use in a cocktail, I haven't been able to tell a big difference okay. between the different products. And so is that just buying like the higher end packaged product? Is that do you know what any of the names are offhand of, of these? We use Natalie's okay. in the Chase Park Plaza. Okay, yep. That's what we used. Yep. Um, I I actually really liked it, tasting it side by side. I got a little bit more sweetness from the Natalie's because of the sugars, because they have to keep it stable, like I said before, but it, like, it still had what I wanted out of a lime. It still had that nice acidity. It still had the, the taste that I wanted. Okay, cool. So, yeah, but I think that's it. It's like, you know, sometimes you're making something at home and like, when do you have limes, you know, and, and, and whatnot. So um, good. I think sometimes people are always looking for those little shortcuts. And because, uh, yeah, I, I never want to demonize someone at all for using whatever, you know, pre-bottled, whatever. It's more just um, like with anything. It's like taste fresh pineapple next to canned pineapple. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind the difference, keep going, right? But I think like this A-B comparison is always one of the best things I find for people. It's like, wait, why is this tequila cost so much more than Jose Cuervo? Well, I would recommend tasting Cuervo alongside that product and you then make the call. Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like we're often so much hoping that they're going to be able to make that leap in terms of appreciating when in reality, a lot of times, they can't appreciate the flavor profile and the difference, uh, the difference in time. Yeah, and that really does come with just tasting it side by side. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot recently about like putting out like a general tasting guide for people. And it's like, whatever you do when you're tasting, don't taste something on its own. You need some, I mean, taste it alongside something else. That A-B like, taste comparison is just going to be very important. Mm -hmm. Are there ingredients you're working with or some, something I always want to know is like what's changed for people in the past year, couple of years? Are there things you're working with? Um, and obviously knowing some things that maybe are going on uh, on the bar at Indo or Yvonne are a little bit harder to find, but are there things that when you see you're like, I think more people who maybe are practicing at home, they should use this ingredient. They should, you know, be leaning more on this spirit are there things that come to mind for you for the average person out there um first thing that comes to my mind would probably be yuzu 
Um, used to actually goes a very long way as opposed to just regular lemon and lime juice. Um, if you can find, obviously fresh yuzu is best, but even if you find the ones that are in like, you can really only find yuzu in like enormous bottles, but um, a little bit goes a long way and you can make really nice like cordials with them. Like the first thing that comes to my mind is making like some kind of limoncello but out of yuzu. I think it would be really, really good. And so, so, so to people who might have heard it but not know it, so yuzu is going to be it's a it's an acid it's a it's a citrus. Mm -hmm. And how would you is it is it best to think of it as like the lane between lemon and lime, or how how would you describe it to someone in terms of the, the flavor it's presenting right there? I think that I think that flavor wise, it's a little bit closer to lemon. Um, but it definitely has a lot more acidity to it. It's a little bit brighter. Um, it's definitely stronger okay. too. But I feel I, I personally feel like the flavor, like the citrus flavor of yuzu, is a lot more concentrated than for regular lemon or lime juice. Okay. It's like it's turning it up a notch for sure. Got it. So in our little show notes, I'll be sure to put like a link to a a cordial recipe for some yuzu for people out there because I feel like you hear the term cordial and you're like I have heard that before but what do I what do I do with that do you um you know and you've spent pretty much your whole you know uh adult 21 plus life you know having the training of knowing how to make drinks properly but if someone is frustrated at home one my guess is they probably shouldn't be trying Trying to make the Python's Pearl cocktail that I had the other day at Indo would probably be pretty difficult for the lay person at home. I don't know how many people are infusing their rum with Thai tea out there to, to start, but you know, if someone would tell you like they they've been at home and they've been messing around a little bit and they're frustrated, one, I'm sure you'd be interrogating that a little bit. But if you were going to train someone how to make something basically and simply at home. What might you share with that person? Are they on like a beginner's level? I would typically t tend to think, yeah, a lot of people to me, it's, they may have even made something before, but the reality is, is that the, the fundamentals, I think I always find need to be reinforced with people as well. But uh, yeah, so, so they are, they are more beginner than yeah intermediate okay. level. So I always tell people start with an old fashioned. Like an old fashioned is you should besides like maybe the whiskey, but I would hope you have whiskey for this. Like you have all the ingredients already. You might have to go get some nicer cherries, but the sugar, you just need sugar, whiskey, some orange zest, just a peel and a little and maybe a little bit of water and ice. And that's really all that you need. And you can you can spice it up a little bit. You can use brown sugar instead of like plain white sugar. And you can use, you could even make like a really simple honey syrup where you just warm up some water, put half and half honey and hot water, mix it together to make it a little bit more easy to mix. Um, you could do that. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a lot more versatile than people think. And it's really easy. It's a lot easier to mess up than people think. Like I've spent a long time perfecting, quote unquote, perfecting old fashions. But I would definitely start with that just because almost everybody has the ingredients. It's easy to make. Um, beyond that, if you do have citrus, um, 
daiquiris are really easy. It's just rum, sugar, and lime. Margaritas are typically pretty easy too. You just add add the tequila and a little bit of um, of triple sec or orange curacao, along with the lime and simple. Um, and even something like a bee's knees, which is just gin, lemon juice, simple syrup, you could even do that too. So something very basic, and getting those proportions right in a way that, in a way that you like, and even you can even mess around with the simple syrup if you want to get really nerdy. Do like a two to one to just a two to one sugar to water to make it more viscous, and if that's the way that you like it, um, or just doing a simple one to one, one cup sugar, one cup water. You could even do it that way. I'd say starting off with three to four ingredients for, for a cocktail is ideal. So, you know, we all have different taste profiles in terms of like, you know, the old, you know, your, the old fashioned you most want to sit with, and I do, they're probably going to be most of the same, but you might prefer a little bit extra bitters, whatever. One of the things I find is despite the raging popularity of bourbon right now that a lot of people have been slid a glass of it at some point and said here you're gonna love this and like they put their nose in there and they're like this smells like fire to me like um, <laughs> so i sometimes will find an aversion to old fashions to manhattans uh in part because they might just be, be served very boozy but so someone has made the old-fashioned and they've been like I don't know what I'm exactly tasting, but it tastes hot. It I don't know if I like this. Um, how do you you begin to recommend to someone when it comes to a Manhattan or an old fashioned? How would you say like, hey, I need the training wheels on this one? What would you tell them to do? Is it just dialing up the sugar or the or the vermouth, or how would you recommend someone make that drink more accessible? Um, so I would always try to include it with rocks so like make sure that you have enough ice in your drink start i started out drinking manhattans on the rocks and that's still the way that i prefer to drink them just because it's going to taste hot at first but once it dilutes a little bit more it's going to be a lot more approachable even today when i try new spirits i add some water to when i'm trying them just so that more of the aromatics come out i get more of the flavor profile and a little bit less of the heat so i would definitely start with more ice Maybe dilute it down just a little bit, just so you can get, you can still taste those flavor, those flavors that you want. And that way your taste buds kind of remember that and you can anticipate it for the next time that you're drinking it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that way, like you can still look for those flavors. When you make an old fashioned or Manhattan, you dilute it to its proper dilution rate. You don't have to add anything else to it. You don't have to wait for it to sit for a while or like dilute it with more ice. You can kind of drink it freshly after it's made and be like, all oh, right, that's right. I recognize those flavors or this is this is a little bit more approachable. And some of it, this is the way that I did it because I wanted to, I really wanted to try to like Manhattans and old fashions. I just kept drinking them. <laughs> it also is a little bit, I mean, my mother, uh, God bless her, is not much of a drinker and here I am, her son making her real proud. Um, but, but a part of it is a little bit like a, a lot of us getting schooled up in in coffee or whatnot too. I mean, it is a little bit of an acquired taste. Um, clearly, you can you go from coffee to you know uh, 
frappuccino or even just a you know cappuccino you were obviously thinning out the coffee and so yeah it's like i think it's for some people that are averse to it it's figuring out it's what you said with like a bee's knees like the gin is going to be there but it's not going to be as present as in a martini we're going to be like no yeah hello <laughs> this this hurts a lot right here um so a couple of random things just for fun um so you're uh, you've been in, invited over to a friend's house that you've just met, uh, and they've asked you to, you know, you're bringing a little housewarming gift. You don't know what's on their bar. You don't necessarily know what their preference is. What might you bring that you think they'd find interesting? Um, what would you bring as a gift, maybe, if you were going to bring a spirit or a liqueur as a, as a gift? Um, I need to second that's right <laughs> uh i would say probably some type of aperitivo or liquor 43. okay talk about liqueur 43 or and uh, yeah how about talk about liqueur 43 for a minute mm -hmm. and and i won't hold you to it on it but like also break down aperitivo for us a little bit after that sure. too so. so liquor 43 is um i don't i this is where we talk, we started getting technical. I don't remember it. I haven't worked with it for a while, so I, I can't remember the exact base of it, which is pretty embarrassing. But I get lots of like toffee and honey notes from it. And it's it's great you like used in small doses as a sweetener. Okay. Um, it is a little hard to work with because sometimes it can flatten the cocktail, but on its own, it's a great sipper. It's a great sipper with just a little bit of ice, even a little bit of soda on top. I've done that before. Mm -hmm. And um or a little bit of coffee, like having a little bit of it in your coffee. Okay. Um, it can be, it, it's surprisingly good in um, a little bit like in a, in a margarita actually. Um, add it, like if you add a little bit more of like the citrus and the triple sec and add just like a, a dash of it, like maybe a quarter of an ounce. Um, it kind of has a, a similar effect as chocolate bitters. So it's, mm. It's really interesting. It's it's pretty versatile if you can play with it around a little bit. Um, I've just never gotten to the point where I can use more than like a little tiny splash in it. And it adds a little bit of depth, but I, I love the flavors that it has. Okay. And, um, yes. Yeah, no, you go ahead. <laughs> so for aperitivo, aperitivo is similar to like a Campari um, or, um, or Aperol. So something that definitely could have its uses, like an Aperol spritz or Campari spritz. Um, you could use them in Negronis, um, or you can sip on them on your own, on its own. I tend to think that Campari as like, what do you want to use cilantro or olives as a food reference? I'd like, you are either on team cilantro or you are off, you either love olives or you hate them. I don't know anybody that has a middle ground opinion on Campari. Uh, I think it's you are either in or you are out. Do you do you feel the same way? Yes. Not, okay. Yeah. I'm, but I'm actually out. Okay. I am not Team Campari. Okay, got it. And so, um, so on the aperitivos, is there? So, what what would you personally be reaching for if you were going to be having one instead? I like Aperol a lot. Aperol's really nice, got this nice like orange peel, grapefruit notes to it. It's It can be really refreshing, but it can also kind of 
bring you it, it can also be used as like a nice like end of the meal sipper um i also love contrato contrato's um spirit lineup is great they have a contrato bitter that's kind of supposed to be like their aperol or campari um but really really easy to sip it's super approachable um their contrato aperitivo is also um supposed to be kind of like an, an aperol but it's I, it's way lighter it's much lighter it's got this nice like salmon-y rosé color um that one I've used in a couple cocktails. I've I've just added it to like daiquiris, and it it creates a little bit more depth to it, but still keeping the fruit the fruit notes really nice and light. Um, those are the main ones that come to mind just because I'm working with them right now. Sure, but there's there are so many aperitivos and aperitifs out there. So, for the folks listening home, I will attempt to navigate this, and you can let me know how much I'm on or off here. So. What's interesting about Campari and Aperol is and there are other products that have like, you know, Kleenex is the easy example of like, you know, it's a tissue, it's not, you know, Kleenex is the brand. You know, people like Campari is Campari, but like it belongs to what would more technically be the, the bitter family, mm-hmm. whereas Aperol is an aperitif. Is that correct? Or is that, or, is that, or how, would you, how would you discern, because isn't there a slight there is. Des- Des- and if you don't remember, it's, it's it's not the end of the world. It's just because um, I think people see Contrato and they might recognize like the color, but in their mind, they're making this like, this is a whole other thing as opposed to this is a a cousin, you know, it's, Contrato mm-hmm. just happens to be a brand difference where they have their bitter and they have their aperitif. Um, so like the Contrato bitter is going to line up with Campari and the Aperol is going to line up with their Contrados aperitif is that yes and no um (laughs) (laughs) yes and no i would say if you're trying to come i i know that like contrato aperitivo um the lighter one is kind of like a middle ground it's like it's kind of like a bitter aperitivo on training wheels like you're not quite into aperol and campari is just like off the table for you but you you do want to try and get into those spirits a little bit more like that's a good one to try first because that one is good like if you have it in a spritz it's going to be super light it's going to be refreshing um you're just going to get that those nice fruity notes like i said before but you are going to get a little bit of that a little bit of that bitterness not a whole lot though and then you can i would say work your way into aperol and then into the contrato bitter and then into the campari like kind of working your way more like in the more bitter section. Right. Kind of di- keep dialing it up until you realize, like for many people, you've gone too far. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm drinking Campari on the rocks now. What's happened to yeah, me? Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> it used to all make sense. Uh, so another thing that uh, I'll kind of, so when you were talking about the core 43, um, so that is another liqueur that's bringing, to your point, some toffee, vanilla flavors to it. So if I'm at home and I'm making a margarita, and so I've got, you know, follow whatever recipe you want, but like, so I always think about like, I got an ounce and a half of tequila, three quarters of an ounce of my my lime juice and my Cointreau, and then maybe like a quarter ounce of simple syrup. So I'm bringing in this liqueur 43, mm-hmm. and it's bringing in some flavor, but it's also bringing in some sweetness. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, 
for you, Kira, is it kind of an either or decision of, and I know part of this is you've got to workshop it, but like, so if I'm adding in something, a little bit of this sweetness and this flavor, should I dial back the Cointreau? Should I take out the simple syrup? Like, is, am I going to end up with a sweeter cocktail if I don't pull back on any of that? Like, yeah, I wouldn't pull back on the simple as much just because you're going to need a little bit of just that raw sweetness because liquor 43 is still a liqueur, so it's still going to have some heat to it. Yep. And it has some of those dip, deeper, like chocolatey, like rich notes to it. So I would even like incorporate just a little bit into the simple syrup ratio. Like I would, I wouldn't do more than like a quarter of an ounce. Sure. Because it's a little bit goes a long way with like citrus, and I've tried to use more of it in like stirred and stirred drinks, and it's one of those weird liqueurs where it'll either overtake the drink, or it'll it'll just make the drink flat. Like you can't really taste it, but it'll flatten. It'll bring down the rest of the cocktail. So adding a little bit of citrus to it kind of brightens it, but you need to be careful with the ratio on it. And because you're also going to have the Cointreau and a triple sec to it, it's going to play with that a little bit. But adding too much will, if you if you do equal parts of both, it's going to end up canceling out the Cointreau and it's going to create a little bit more heat than you want for a margarita. Okay. Just to break it down for a second, so like when we when you talk about the term uh, a flat versus a more lively cocktail, mm-hmm. um, what would I uh, and I don't sometimes like you know. Like this is a big thing for me is to like sometimes an outsider looking in. What does a flat cocktail taste like or come across like to you compared to so whatever you might be working in when it goes well versus when it's flat? What what might that mean? Flat cocktails for me taste very one dimensional. Okay. Like I get one maybe two notes out of it. Like when I've tried like I've tried to make a liquor forty three Manhattan in the past. And I'll be like, I want a little bit more liquor 43 and then I'll add more. And I'm like, well, now all I get is this weird sweetness with whiskey. I'm like, the, like, it wouldn't, like the vermouth is there, but it doesn't really matter because the flavors aren't coming through. The bitters are in there. I get a little bit of Angostura, but the rest of it doesn't really matter. Then the citrus is like from the orange peel is gone that I zested over the top. Got it. It's, yeah, so it's overtaking and I, yeah, I get it. Because, I mean, just to go back to it, when I... I remember thinking when I had that Python's Pearl drink, I was like, that is a drink that, that is a long flavor bomb right there in terms of working its way back. But, uh, but yeah, so one, it can over, so it can also in a way kind of almost overpower the mm-hmm. drink too. Okay. Yeah, it can overpower it and it can, it like, it can also, weirdly enough, bring down like the other f- subtle flavor notes that you get in just the, the whiskey itself mm-hmm. or like whatever spirit you're working with. It can just completely, like, flatten it, essentially. So just a couple little things in this segment right here. For those of us that have actually not worked in the bar industry before, you get to hear Kira talk a little bit about what it's like to just fall behind in ways that are just punishing, where, you know, the POS point of sale system that spits out tickets uh, for drink orders, like for that to be, you know, four or five feet above the ground, four feet probably, um, but to have the ticket, those receipt orders all the way on the ground and like just digging out night after night, just getting used to like the trade itself. And so that to me is always one of those things of just like realizing what the staff is going through when it's like a busy night. And she talks about 
um, Halloween night in particular. Um, and I also really like the idea for those of you who might be looking to make more of a jump into the field or understand, uh, hey, I'm already kind of home bartending a little bit. Um, what else do I need to know? Kira talks about um, uh, several books that she recommends that made a difference in her uh, world as well as what she's reading right now. Uh, links to all those will be in the show notes. And so with that, enjoy this second segment, guys. So I feel like if I remember from another time we, we talked that your career may have started a little more, uh, bartending career may have started a little more uh, uh you didn't necessarily expect it to become a career. You were tending bar at Bar Louie, if I remember. Mm-hmm. And did you, I, as I recall, that job certainly probably helped ignite the fire. But when you went to work there, were you looking to get in the field or were you just looking to make money and it was a field where you knew that that, that could work? How, how did you end up there in the first place? I knew I was in college and I didn't have money like most college students don't have. and. I was like, and I was actually working before that at a St. Louis bread company. I was working at the Panera and I loved it. Like I did every single job. Like I, there were days, there was, there was a day every now and again, I washed dishes. It wasn't very often, but like I would be kind of like a busser or, or I would be at work register in the bakery and I'd have to do, I have to do some of the bakery and coffee and barista jobs, or like I would work the cashier on the food part. And I'd also be making the food. Like I, I liked jumping around and doing different roles. And I loved working there because it was stimulating all the time, but I was just not making enough money. And so I was like, I need to go somewhere where I can make tips and I think I could be really good as a server. I think I'd really enjoy it. And I went to Bar Louie and they hired me pretty much after my first interview. So I was like, all right. And it was a cool spot. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a Bar Louie. Oh, you have. Yeah, I, I went. I remember going to the uh, one of the Central West End when it first first opened, and certainly really? even its precursor. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got, <laughs> I, I unfortunately have a few years on you, Kira. So I, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I might have been there when that block was built. I don't know. Who knows? But no, it's uh, um, yeah, I can remember being there when it was actually like a yeah, when it was a spot where I remember seeking it out quite a bit. So yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it there. I got way more than I bargained for going in there where like I would serve on a Friday night and the money was really, really good. It was ridiculous how good it was, but I would just run. I, felt, I just felt like I was running the whole night, but I, I liked it. It, it was a, more of a really, it was a really good team vibe. And I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm, I'm making a lot of money. Like this is what I wanted. Um, and I was still going to school. So I was just dead tired all the time. And I actually wasn't really thinking about bartending at the time. It was, the idea wasn't really in my head. I liked serving, but uh, the, the um, I'm trying to remember his exact title. Uh, he was, he was above, he was like the regional manager. He was above all of the St. Louis man, like GMs in the area. I completely forget his title, but I remember his name, Sean. Um, still friends to this day. Um, he, he was like the big boss man that came in. He was talking to the GM and I happened, he was kind of watching everybody. And he was like, I think he was, uh, from what I could tell, he was kind of telling Jessica, who was a GM at the time, he was like, get that person off the bar. They don't know what they're doing. I'm like, and, or he'd be like, that person needs to be a little bit higher up. Like maybe think about training this person as a, as a manager, like an AGM. And I happened to hear him as I walked by him, I was carrying a tray full of glassware. He's like, make her a bartender. And 
and I, I just kind of turned around and he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, I want you to bartend. He's like, I think you would do really well. And he's like, you're moving. He's like, you're fast. He's like, do you know all the drinks? And I was like, yeah, I know what's in them. Like, I know how to describe them. He's like, he's like, whenever you're done with school, because I was like, I can't bar- learn to bartend right now. I'm way too busy. And I, I don't even think I was 21 yet. I think my 21st birthday was coming up in August. And he's like, okay, well, after 21, that month, come in and you're gonna learn how to bartend. I was like, okay. So I started fresh when I was 21. Wow. <laughs> so a little bit of right place, right time. Obviously also, it seems like, you know, he certainly thought he saw like the qualities of a bartender, but also a little bit of like, Kevin also being in the line of sight at that time. So, so when you actually moved into bartending, cause I know things picked up, you know, certainly when you moved uh, down the street to mm-hmm. Chase Park Plaza, the Preston. But were there those things? I mean, despite, uh, so when you began to kind of really understand the bar program at, at Bar Lily, were there things that began to click in terms of like, what made that really interesting to you that, that pulled you further in once you kind of had that role? Yeah, I I liked tasting everything, honestly. Like I, I already, I already tasted through the drinks, um, at the time, like I straw tasted them just to get a feel, like so I could describe them. And then um, when I started bartending, I was like, oh, like this, it's cool to see like the behind the scenes, like how it's actually made. And I started tasting the ingredients on their own. And I remember like thinking back, there were so many spirits that like I appreciate more now that I didn't at the time. Like I first tried Maker's Mark, and I was like, oh my god. But but now. I'm like, oh, I love Maker's Mark. I go into a bar sometimes if I'm feeling, I'm like, Maker's Mark on the rocks. That's what I want. But it was nice, like, kind of dipping my toes in and getting to know all the spirits that were behind the bar. Because I'm pretty sure I tried every single one. Even different, like, we had multiple flavors, like, of the same flavor, but different vodka brands. I even tried those just to see how they compared. Because I was, I was curious. I'm like, why do we have Grey Goose Lorange and we also have Soli Orange? Why do we need two different orange ones? And like brand preference was a big one because people that drink vodka always have a brand preference. But I was like, is there a difference? Is there a reason why they have a brand preference? And so I got into tasting more things that way. I started making my own cocktails behind the bar. Um, I made a, uh, it was never on the menu, but it was like an off menu special for me when I bartended. I ended up making like a Red Bull mojito that was like, that people loved. <laughs> and, uh, it, was, it was a big hit there, but, <laughs> but, um, send me the recipe. <laughs> uh, there was one night I actually got poached from Bar Louie when I was bartending there. Cause I love, I always love moving around. I don't like standing in one place for too long. And besides like working on the well, like working in the well at the, at Bar Louie was definitely like, like you're going to stay there for a long amount of time, but you're just going to be moving the whole time. You're going to be like moving your arms. You're going to, you're going to be constantly in motion. And when we say the well, just to clarify for everybody else out there, like you're working on the service and all the drinks that are coming in as orders from the floor. Yes. You're turning all those out. So, yes. So, so somebody is kind of tending bar, taking care of the people sitting there and someone else is just cranking. Yeah. Drinks. yeah. Just cr- cranking drinks out for the rest of the floor. And there are nights there I just got annihilated. I'll never forget, there was one Halloween, the Central West End Black Party. I was the only well bartender for the entire restaurant and some parts outside. And my tickets were just coming onto the floor. Like, 
Kira, do you have, and I know it's gonna vary on bar time of day, but in terms of for, whether it's indoor or bar Louis as an example, the number of drinks that might be served from the bar versus through the well, mm -hmm. is it three times as many, five times as many? Like, like how, what does that look like in terms of, I'm just trying to like, for the, for the average person who's, who's thinking about, do you have any way to even guess on that? Um, yeah, I would say for a bar like that, it really does depend on the place because at Bar Louie, um, throughout dinner hours, like between like five to like maybe nine o'clock, the well would probably make two to three times more cocktails. Okay. But once it got later, people were at the bar. People were at the bar. Got it. Okay. Okay. Um, got it. All right. That makes sense. So you got poached from Bar Louie, and then you went to? The Chase Park Plaza. I went to the Preston. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but the GM came from Boston, the original GM. He was only there to help set it up. And he came to the bar, and we we laughed about it later on. Um, ben came in, and he was like, and it was wintertime. It was, I think, the beginning of January. And he just was like in sweatpants and like a baggy, like, sweater i think with a beanie on his head he came in by himself sat on like the corner and i was that bartender that sent everybody home like i like it was a 30 plus section bar and i was like nope you guys go like i i got it i like it doesn't matter how many people come in i can do it i've gotten annihilated so many nights that i know how to do it now i just need somebody in the well so it was just two of us but he thought i was by myself and because the well was on the other side of the bar like around the curve where he couldn't see it and so I was, it wasn't that super busy, but it was steady. So I was just making drinks and he, I, I do remember, I was like, he keeps staring at me. But I was like, I was like, do you need anything? He's like, no, I'm fine. He had like two beers and then he left, he slipped me his card. And um, I had been working like very part-time in the chase. Uh, one of my regulars used to be the old food and beverage director. And he was like, hey, we need help with a hostess. Yeah. So can you come and host like once or twice a month? I said, sure. So I was already working there and he slipped me his card and I was like, oh, like I should put in my application for this new spot. Like they're talking about like how it's gonna be a great bar. It's gonna be like, the food's gonna be awesome. So I took it as a sign and I submitted my application. And sure enough, uh, Ben was like, oh, like she already works here. Like it was, it was perfect. And so I came on and he was talking to uh, the two guys that mentored me, Josh and Sasha. And he was like, yeah, you're gonna have 22 year old working with you behind this bar. She's gonna be one of the opening bartenders with you. And they had kind of kind of opposite ends where Sasha was like, later on, Sasha was like, I thought it was exciting. You know, you're not gonna have any bad habits. Like you're gonna be easy to mold. And Josh was kind of apprehensive. Like she's 22, like, I don't know. Like, is she gonna be able to do it? And so understandable from both perspectives, honestly, because I didn't know a whole lot. I knew, I knew like, Bar Louis bartending, like high volume, like people want sweet vodka martinis. Like that's what I knew. And then coming into the Preston was a whole, whole new experience. Cause I was like, I've never heard of an egg white in a cocktail. I don't know a lot of these classics. And I put in a lot of work to be able to keep up with them. Mm -hmm. I knew that if I, I knew that if I couldn't, I was like, I have to go back. I have to go back to staying in that kind of high volume bartending. And I didn't want that. I wanted to get better. I wanted to learn more. And I wanted to be able to fit into the bar I was at the Preston. Because it, it was a beautiful bar. And I loved being there. It was a beautiful space, for sure. 
So do you have, and this could be a pre-pandemic question too, uh, as an evening is winding down, uh, do you and the team ever have any post-shift rituals or whatnot, or yeah. get me out of here, I want to go home, or well, <laughs> what does the team like to get into as the, as the evening's winding down? We normally do like one like big, not big shot, but like we normally do like one shot together as a group. That's pretty. That's a pretty normal thing. Like especially like after a especially hard night on a on a pretty steady night where it's like okay tonight was pretty smooth. Like it's only like let's just we're we're getting out of here at a decent time. We can all go to the bar like afterwards. Like let's just clean and get out of here. On mellow nights, it's a lot easier. Like we don't do it as often, but on nights on like a weeknight a weekend night whenever we get like railed and we're super busy, we'll be like all right, let's gather. <laughs> And we, we do like a little, I would say like not, I don't think they're full shots, maybe like right underneath a full shot, about an ounce, like okay. 0.75 to an ounce. And then we'll just all do one together. Like, all right, great shift. We made it. Like, let's get ready to do it again tomorrow. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll cheers and we're like, all right, let's get back to cleaning. Let's do whatever we need to do. And yeah, that's, that's mainly our big ritual. Got it. And what's uh, what's in the glass at that point? Is it kind of whatever we have a little extra laying around, or do you guys have a, a typical thing you like to lean on? Mainly whiskey. Okay. Or roses, okay. or um, or old Overholt, um, or even some Japanese whiskey, like the like the lower end ones in Toritoki or EY. Whatever we have a lot of, it's like okay, we can afford to to do this. But yeah, mainly whiskey. Um, some people prefer Fernet. So the bitter liqueur, Italian bitter liqueur. Um, I personally don't, I've never been a big Fernet fan, but it is a big industry thing. I am, all, I am all over Campari, unlike you. <laughs> Fernet is just like, I can take one for the team sometimes, but like it is, I find nothing desirable about it. There are different Fernets, though. Correct, yeah, and I there's a number of Amari out there that I like, and mm -hmm. I, I've dabbled in some other Fernets. I bought one in Baltimore recently. It's pretty good, but it was just, I don't know. It can be very abrasive. Yeah, So, but to each their own out there. Um, so just one or two other things. Um, for people out there listening that are either interested in Asian cocktails or just spirits and, you know, like just you know, getting better into their home practice in general. Um, books or other resources you tend to recommend as, as uh, yeah, books or resources you tend to recommend to people? Um, I always recommend uh, Death & Co, Death & Co's cocktail book. That was the first serious cocktail book I ever purchased. And I really dove into that thing. Like I went elbows deep into it. I had took so many notes. I wrote down the cocktails that really interested me at the time. I had like a full notebook just dedicated to it. So I always recommend that one. Um, Liquid Intelligence is another one that I strongly recommend. Um, if you're wanting to play with different flavors, actually the Flavor Bible, the Flavor Bible, the Vegetarian one and the Flavor Matrix, all those book series are incredible. The Flavor Ma Matrix, I have, I actually own that one, and that one is super interesting because it, de it delves into how flavor works, um, what flavors complement each other, what flavors help boost each other up in their best areas. Um, it has these little graphs that you can look at of like, 
this is going to be an okay pairing with this. This is surprisingly a good pairing. These are going to be the best pairings for it. So that one I actually use a lot for cocktails too. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just trying, those are the ones that come up the top of my head. I'm trying to think of the other ones that I have at home. Um, PDT is a pretty good one too. I haven't read that one front to cover, but I've skimmed different pages of that. I've read different pages, like sections of it, and that one's really good. Um, while, um, while the Joy of Mixology by Gary Regan was the first serious cocktail book ever, in my more intensive period, uh, uh, the Death and Co book was my first one too. And it's uh, it's for the layperson out there, it's 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 a tome of a book, but um, it is. It's awesome, and uh, I have the Flavor Bible. I've never heard of the Matrix, so I'm gonna definitely have to look. Yeah, look up the Flavor Matrix, it's cool. Okay. Um, the Aviary cocktail books are also excellent. I One of my chefs, one of my cooks at Nibonte, he has the Zero Proof one. Okay. And he's letting me borrow it right now, and I'm nerding out over it at home. Okay, those are also massive books. I have their, I have their book from The Office, um, which is just their classics, which is pretty cool. I've been to the office. Okay. The office is way cooler than the aviary. <laughs> <laughs> my friend Jim has gone multiple times and raves about it, but I've uh, not I've not been up to the Ackett's show yet, so I gotta stop in there. Um, yeah. If you ever go to the office, uh, if they do, if they ask you to do their snapshot, don't do it. Okay. Don't do it. Okay. Um, I went there. We had dinner in the aviary, and we happened to meet the one of the managers there was from St. Louis. Okay. Um, and uh, he took us down to the office, and we were down there, and Grant Atkins was down there after one of his shifts, and okay. he was sitting at the little bar they had down there, and we were the only other people in there. Like, Grant was with another kitchen worker, and it was just me and my boyfriend at the time, and we ate some mussels, and then uh, the manager was like, hey, do you want to do, like, our staff shot? And we are like, yeah, sure. Like, that would be cool. We're like, yeah, this is, like, and uh, he's like, this is our chef's, like, go-to shot. And we're like, Oh, this is cool. So we, we did a shot with Grant Atkins, which was awesome. And I had, it was one of those shots. I had to hold it in my mouth and swallow it twice. Otherwise I would have thrown up. And they told me that it was 50% Applejack 100 okay. and 50% green chartreuse. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's bold. It was very bold. Damn. Like, they didn't tell us what it was until afterwards. They were like, cheers. I did it, and I, I was just like, I, I had to hold my breath, and like, I swallowed part of it, and I was like, all right, do it again, <laughs> and swallow the rest of it. I was like, I like my eyes were watering, <laughs> and my my boyfriend at the time was like, oh yeah, it was good, and I was like, it was so good. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that with us. <laughs> I have had, I've seen, I've had that shot before, so to speak, where it's just like, you know, not that mix, but you're just like. What was that? Um, so last question. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, whether it's, you know, in a flask or a cooler you've got, so you're going to, you're, you're, you found a way to sneak something into a concert with you that you're headed to. What would you, what would you sneak in? Whether it's a, a flask of something, you know, uh, you know, it could be a spirit, it could be a seltzer, it doesn't matter. Like, what, what, what would you sneak into to a concert if you could? Um... Honestly, I I like seltzers a lot, so I'd probably sneak in um, the uh, one of the Corona seltzers. The Corona seltzers are my favorite. Okay, I 
Verona, Verona makes really good seltzers. Okay. But something I like, I like seltzers to sip on kind of a, like a, kind of to nurse just because it's easy drinking and I'm actually allergic to alcohol. So surprisingly enough, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> just your, your reaction. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, one in four South, uh, Eastern Asians are allergic where we can't correctly process alcohol. So, um, alcohol gets digested into your liver in four stages and I can't get past the second stage. It takes a long time for me to break it down. So, and I, I found this out when I was young in Japan, in high school, I was like, oh, I'm allergic. And then um, it took a while for me to like figure out my limits, figure out like, okay, I need to drink lots of water. And these are the spirits, like these are the things that I drink that will make me break out sooner. Typically very yeasty things, at least for me, is what happens. Like champagne, uh, beer, um, rice, and some scotches will make me break out pretty quickly. But um, rice-based spirits, I'm normally pretty okay with. I have to drink quite a bit more to get to that point where, like, I'm I'm re- I'm really red. But, but yeah, so I actually I like why I like drinking a lot of spirits. I really have to pace myself and limit how much I drink. But seltzers, I I can drink like four. And I'm good to go. Okay. I don't have an I don't have an allergic reaction. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's uh when your when your craft is is fighting back against you, that's uh that's a whole other level of thing right there. So. I mean, it works. I I tell people all the time, like I will never imbibe too much of my product. So you know, it's just good business. <laughs> you know what? That, you know what? That is great. It is great. It's a self-regulating mechanism right there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's great on the other end. Um, well, thank you for this, Kira. Thanks for spending some time with us on this uh, Sunday, your off day. So I <laughs> very appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. You bet. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked the interview, the transcript and show notes are located at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself, Chris LeBeau. Subscribe to avoid missing an episode, and if you think this is good stuff, share it with a friend or review us on your listening platform. And check out our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential. Remember, the best way to get better at mixology is to practice. And the best way to do that is in the company of friends and family. Happy cocktailing, everybody. Mm